The fair had everything. When you tired of the auto racing, you could always watch the camels run. That is, if you weren't chasing after the penny top car or gawking at the movie stars and celebrities. World fairs, or expos as we now call them, have been around for 170 years and right now there's one on in Dubai. It's a chance for countries to showcase their best and boost trade and business. The first expo was in Britain in 1851 and New Zealand was there. Since then they've been hosted all over the globe in places like Canada, Japan and China. A wealth of creative energy has gone into planning and construction. This is, in fact, the greatest world exposition ever held. The elaborate Shanghai Expo marks China's coming of age in a new world economic order. But they come with a big price tag, even if you're not hosting it. New Zealand spent $8.5 million at Expo 2005 in Japan. We spent nearly four times that at Expo 2010 in China. And this year in Dubai... The government sunk close to $60 million into creating a pavilion at the Dubai Expo that is billed as the world's largest gathering of industry and an opportunity to grow our export market. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail, are expos worth the tens of millions of dollars we spend on them? And what happens when the country you're trying to increase trade with has a questionable human rights record. Policymakers, uh, the government will need to think about how they address those and come up with a plan or strategy because I think New Zealanders do expect there to be some attention paid to these issues. Expos are the Olympics of industry, the Olympics of trade, um, but they're more than that. Geoffrey Miller is an international analyst with the Democracy Project. The project is hosted by Victoria University and gives analysis on wide-ranging topics. Geoffrey is from Dunedin, but has travelled all over the world, including to the Middle East, where he learnt Arabic. He starts by taking me back to 1851. And that was the first World Expo in any sense, and that was really the brainchild of Prince Albert, who was Queen Victoria's husband. And he wanted to showcase Britain's leadership role in the Industrial Revolution. So it was about uh, showing all those products that were being developed in Britain at that time, textiles, steel, iron-based products, um, the railways as well and were a big part of that initial first great exhibition in 1851. And the building uh, itself, uh, expos have always been about the structures uh, in which the events have been held. So the Crystal Palace, as it was known, really was, was spectacular. It involved a huge amount of glass in a way that just hadn't been done up till that point. Another lasting monument from World Expos is the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Colour televisions, touchscreens, the telephone, cherry coke and the ice cream cone all made their debut at World Fairs. New Zealand sent a delegation to that first expo in 1851 as well. That was only 11 years after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. So it was, was quite a landmark event. And New Zealand exhibit, exhibit featured natural resources as well as crafted items made by Māori, such as flax baskets, cardboard and objects, eel traps, mats, fish hooks and hand clubs. So, yeah, New Zealand has been a part of these World Expos ever since, uh, since 1851. So it's got a long, long tra- tradition, long pedigree. That said, we don't participate in absolutely every one of them. Um, they are big 
you know, expensive events to prepare for. They do take a lot of preparation. We sat out the last one in 2015 that was in Milan, but we did have a big participation in the uh, Shanghai. New Zealand will invest nearly $30 million on Shanghai 2010, and the New Zealand Pavilion is going to be the biggest in New Zealand Expo experience. This is our, our first expo since then, and it obviously requires a lot of resources, a lot of money, but also a lot of time. So if it's worth doing, I think it's worth doing well, and that seems to be the New Zealand approach to things. Expo 2020 was delayed by a year because of the pandemic. As for the cost... $60 million uh, that we're spending on this. It's, you know, it's not an insignificant amount of money, but if New Zealand were absent, I think it would be a... It probably would be a mistake and would also be seen as perhaps a little bit of a snub too, given that New Zealand has been invited by the UAE, by the ruler of Dubai uh, to attend. So you do think it's worth the investment? I think so. Um, it's obviously a, a, quite a commitment. It is a lot of money. $60 million would could be spent in lots of different ways. I think it is it is hard to quantify the benefits from an expo. That's always been the case. Uh, you know, it's hard to quantify the, the benefit to Britain from you know, the 1851 Great Exhibition. I mean, the Industrial Revolution would have gone on regardless. But the expos are the Olympics of industry, the Olympics of trade. But they're more than that. They're a, a national showcase, essentially. You know, each country comes along, they host all kinds of events as part of these expos and New Zealand will be hosting an Indigenous festival in November. Uh, that's quite prestigious that New Zealand is being asked to uh, to run that. So it's like a mini festival within the expo. Waitangi Day will also, of course, be held during the expo's duration. And so 660 are playing at that. New Zealand is a small trading nation. We rely on showcasing what we've got. Uh, most of that's being done all the time by private companies who are travelling and holding business meetings. The World Expos, though, it's a government thing. You know, It requires governments to get involved and to build these pavilions. Private businesses just can't do that. They're, they're not invited. The governments are invited. Uh, businesses then come along uh, and, and work as part of that. But ultimately, you know, it does require leadership from, from the New Zealand government and uh, this is something I, I think is a bipartisan commitment. It began in 2016, the preparations, and obviously have continued uh, under a Labour government. So I think there's, there's general broad agreement that these expos are worthwhile. Certainly the 2010 expo in Shanghai, you know, it came at the start of a real boom in trade between New Zealand and China. Now, most of that's course was based on was based on the free trade agreement of 2008 but the expo in 2010 was a way of cementing that and uh, who knows how many deals perhaps have come out of that uh, as a result you know Ch Chinese uh, visitors who went to that expo and then have come to New Zealand perhaps to study or their business deal they've done business deals with New Zealand companies so you don't get this opportunity very often and um, the Dubai expo I think there's a particular landmark one and um, not every expo is as big. Uh, this will be the first expo though in the Middle East or Africa and it's a region in which you know, New Zealand has you know, considerable business interests and considerable trade interests. We'll come back to Geoffrey Miller soon but first just what is the more than 60 million dollars being spent on? I asked Clayton Kimpton the New Zealand Commissioner General to Expo 2020. It was increased um, because of the costs of the delay around the, the pandemic. So the original one was 50, $54 million. 
But the sorts of things that that covers is the, yes, the, the construction, but the design and development of the creative experience. It, co it covers the construction, it covered the pandemic costs, and it covers the operations of a large pavilion, restaurant, hosting areas, and all the all of the stuff that needs to happen during the operation phase as well. I can't really say it's a third, a third, a third, but it breaks down into those sort of significant chunks. What are the factors that are taken into consideration when New Zealand decides whether to go to an expo? But more recently, um, we don't automatically go to expos unless Cabinet decides that there's a strong strategic reason to do so. So the last expo we were at was in 2010. We we didn't go to the one in 2015, and we haven't done any of the, the smaller expos in between because when we do do an expo, we want to do it properly. For this expo, a, a business case was put together um, with the assistance of, of Ernst & Young and reflecting the important relationship that the UE is for New Zealand, reflecting the fact that Dubai in particular is a re-export hub from the Middle East into Africa, Europe, and Central Asia, and also reflecting the fact that this expo, unlike others, will have a significant international audience, which is the audience we want to speak with because of that transport hub nature of it. The Gulf cooperation countries, that's Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Oman, and the UAE and Qatar, um, are New Zealand's sixth largest market. And so from a trade perspective, um, that also was an important factor. The, the strategic reasons for going pre-pandemic had just become even more, more important in a COVID world. So after being postponed for a year, and this is the first global gathering of business since the pandemic started, there were the 192 participants that include all our key trading partners and competitors. Um, it's, it's really important that we're here with a, a strong message. And as um, Prime Minister Ardern said in March... This, in a post-COVID world, will be a chance for New Zealand to reconnect with the world. We've done very well with some of our export markets, but now's a chance to make sure that we are entering new spaces and really lifting our profile. How does our spend at this expo compare to previous expos? Um, the, it's reasonably difficult to do a, a direct comparison. What we did is we took what we spent in Shanghai, looked at what the cost of creating something similar in Dubai was, and that, that was the basis behind the appropriation. We then looked at what sort of spend are we going to make in order to get a return? And so the pre-COVID estimates were projecting a $313 million benefit to the New Zealand economy. Post-pandemic then, has that figure changed? It's, it's, um, we have not done the analysis of what that figure is. Our expectation is that it will be even greater, and we have seen uh, in the GCC market alone, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates has been, have been the fastest-growing markets for, for New Zealand in the past 18 months. So we've got some very strong indicators that affect our, um, the return of uh, uh, trade and investment from this region, and our participation in Expo uh, continues to track incredibly well. We haven't reforecast it because there are so many unknowns. Um, that's why I make that reference to the pre uh, the pre COVID. But my expectation is that it will be much stronger. Welcome to the New Zealand Pavilion.
We've got a modest size pavilion compared to, to, to others at Expo, but it's the right size for New Zealand. That gives a really good, strong statement about it. So we use the last Expo as a, as a bit of a guide, but each market is slightly different. I mean, th- that's a little hard to understand maybe from just someone living in New Zealand when the Shanghai spend was about $30 million and the, this Expo has been double that. That's fair, but of course, ten years ten years has gone past, or eleven years have gone past since then. So you have to take into inflation, and that that cost was the was taken into account in terms of the strategic benefits of participation by cabinet. So the cost of this is not a surprise to that decision making process. It was very much a part of that. This is being held in a market that is expensive to operate in. How do you justify that when some of the spends from countries that are much larger than ours, so so France, for example, aren't that much more expensive than what we've put into? You've got to make sure you're comparing apples with apples. Some countries just announced the cost of their building alone. I know for the French National Day, they brought in their fighter jets to do an aerial display. Was that included in their cost of uh, participating in Expo? I, I don't know. What I do know for New Zealand is that we include everything. So there is no additional amounts of money that sort of sit there for, for, for other things that we might do. Some countries don't include salaries and you know, the cost of officials. We put absolutely everything into this appropriation, so it's very clear what the total cost is. So you absolutely stand by the fact that we needed that amount of money this time round? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm responsible for delivering that to government and also giving back that, ensuring that there is that value there. And I, I stand here very confident that we will deliver that. And the the responses that we're getting to our participation already um, have surpassed our expectations. Um, so the, the, the pavilion is being used not just by New Zealand companies, but by other countries that have been so impressed with our, our restaurant, which is known as Teaki, uh, and the, the hosting areas that they are, they are holding their dinners and, and what have you in our pavilion. Um, what better way of uh, talking about our amazing food and beverage than to have um, a group from Belgium or Switzerland uh, or, or, these other, or, or many of the other countries that are saying, hey, can we use the New Zealand pavilion um, because we think that the, the food and beverage offering is so great. So I'm very, very confident that when we come to do our closeout report, at the middle of next year, uh, that we'll be able to show that we have delivered to New Zealand an outstanding return on this investment. How will we know that our presence there has been a success? There are lots of ways that we're going to measure that. Um, First of all, we're measuring the development of the perception of New Zealand from the the time someone comes into the pavilion and and when they leave, what is the change in their perception of New Zealand or their understanding of New Zealand? The visitor experience in in terms of our pavilion is is built around the story of the Whanganui River, which in 2017 was given the status of a legal person. New Zealanders will be familiar with the, the Whakatoki, I am the river, the river is me. And, and the Whanganui people, we've been working with Whanganui iwi over the past couple of years to wrap that story around our care for people in place theme. Um, we want people to understand New Zealand is a nation of innovators who care for people in place. We're also going to be measuring our increase in trade, our increase in investment, the 
inquiries regarding education and tourism as well. And then we're measuring our diplomatic efforts and what, what bilateral connections that there have been over the course of this, uh, not just the six months, but over the course of the, the four years that have been um, involved in the preparation and delivery of this. Now, a lot of people have asked me, am I measuring how many people go through the pavilion? Uh, we are measuring how many people go through the pavilion, but that's not a KPI. Our performance indicators are those harder, harder things like trade and investment, the number of people that go explore further into the, the website that we've got and, and start to ask questions about our technology, innovations, tourism, education, etc. They'll also be measuring how many businesses engage with the pavilion and how many deals are done. But also our trade stats. So we look at Statistics New Zealand and say, well, what were our trade stats back in uh, 2018? What are they going to be in 2021, 22, 23? And just sort of see where that overall lift is, given the emphasis that we're placing on this particular region. So how many New Zealand businesses are able to actually take part this year? Look, it's, it's quite a few. We have got 28 New Zealand businesses that are sponsors, and a number of those came on um, after the pandemic started because they they were all really looking beyond New Zealand to say, how do we remain connected and relevant, and how do we have a profile uh, um, across the globe, even, uh, even during the pandemic? We've had more than 20 New Zealand companies visit and hold dinners and events at the New Zealand Pavilion and really engaging with their customers and building relationships and their distributors. So that's a good example. This is October, the hottest month of Expo, the, the start of it, and we've already had 20, more than tw- about 25 New Zealand companies coming through. This is only going to grow. We've got um, a lot of people coming up in November around the Tiaratini uh, Global Indigenous Summit, and we've got a lot of activations in January, February, March, particularly around food, agriculture, livelihoods, health technology. And so, yes, it'll be less than we would have expected pre-COVID, but it's actually more than we expected post-COVID. So we're really excited by that engagement from the private sector. The European Parliament passed a resolution calling for sponsors and member states to withdraw from Expo 2020, citing documented abuses of foreign workers and the imprisonment of political dissidents. United Arab Emirates rejected the resolution and the allegations made in it and said it completely ignores all of the UAE's significant achievements in the human rights field. Where do we stand on that? Well, it's a question really for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. But what I can say is that there isn't a single European country that is withdrawn from Expo. They're all here. There's 192 countries all putting their very best foot forward uh, at this meeting of the world uh, post-pandemic. It's, it's, it's very easy to roll out what the, the, someone in the European Parliament said. The reality is every European country is here and no European companies have withdrawn their sponsorship. It does give you pause for thought. I mean, there are real human rights issues and real human rights abuses in the Gulf, uh, including in the UAE. And much of the European Parliament's resolution uh, focused on a dissident activist called uh, Ahmed Mansour, who is uh, currently in solitary confinement. He's been imprisoned since 2017, mainly for, for simply for calling out for freedoms, uh, for media freedoms, for more democratic reforms. These 
countries, they're not democracies. The UAE is a, it's a monarchy system. And so they don't tolerate political dissent. I mean, I mean these are hard issues. And uh, I, I certainly would never say there are any easy answers to that. You know, for New Zealanders, this will seem familiar from our dealings with China, where which is a more high-profile relationship where we uh, often hear about you know, human rights abuses in Xinjiang and uh, China's West or the suppression of democracy and de- de- uh, democracy activ- activists in Hong Kong. So it's not an issue that is new to us. And in fact, a lot of New Zealand's trading partners uh, are not democracies and are in fact quite authoritarian. I guess you, you, know, you could go the route, for example, that New Zealand and other countries uh, used with South Africa uh, back in the apartheid days, which was based on isolation, boycotts, uh, and so forth, uh, to try and bring about the end of that system. And that was successful. I think in terms of the Gulf, or the, the UAE in particular, or China, um, the strategy has been for New Zealand is to, to engage, uh, to raise these human rights abuses and, and human rights problems behind the scenes. But you know, to simply boycott these events. I mean, I think if New Zealand boycotted the expo on a matter of principle like this, uh, it would be unlikely to uh, free Ahmed Mansour or to bring about any real change. Uh, I, I think that would only be possible with real collective action. But as we've seen, there's not even the will from European countries whose parliament passed a resolution. You know, it would be a big call for New Zealand to to go down that route. And I just don't think it would be probably that effective, uh, as I say, without the big players really going down that path. New Zealand tra- taking the moral high ground would, in all likelihood, only lead to you know relations between uh, the UAE, between the Gulf and New Zealand uh, being being severed, you know, New Zealand would probably have its trade cut off, um, you know, and uh, you know, nothing would probably really change. And you know, I think as the relationship grows, these issues will become more prominent. I, I think at the moment, New Zealanders are just not focusing overly on what's happening in the Middle East in terms of human rights. If the relationship grows invariably, you'll see more attention put uh, to those issues. And policymakers, uh, the government will need to think about how they address those and come up with the plan or strategy because I think New Zealanders do expect there to be some attention paid to these issues. But New Zealanders do care about uh, human rights. I think we probably see the difficulties though when we are trying to earn a living in the world. I think we see the difficulties of the with the China relationship that if we do speak out loudly, we'll, we'll be punished um, for that. And the question is whether we can afford that as a, as a trading nation. So I think these are difficult issues for policymakers to grapple with. Expo 2020 kicked off at the start of last month and will be open to visitors for six months. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode, Alexia Russell produced it, and thanks to Jeffrey Miller and Clayton Kimpton. Matewa. Wa.